The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring. OpenStar is a venture seeking to achieve nuclear fusion. This has always been something of a scientific holy grail, a clean energy process that creates enormous amounts of energy using abundant and safe raw materials and leaving no legacy of nuclear waste. Over the years, governments, defence agencies and large institutions have experimented towards fusion. But as the old line goes, it's always been about 30 years away. Not so now. There have been some extremely exciting first signs from a project in the US, and in Aotearoa, OpenStar has just emerged from stealth mode with a new take on an existing approach, leveraging an area of science New Zealand is a centre of excellence for globally. It's been called the most ambitious and exciting company in New Zealand by some of the most influential figures in our startup and VC ecosystem. And joining us now to talk the journey, harnessing the power to change the world, the potential impacts for climate change mitigation, and what's next, founder, CEO, Dr. Ratu Mataira joins us now. Tanakwe, thank you for being here. Morena, Simon. I first saw about OpenStar and your work in the wonderful pitch that you put together uh, before the kind of stealth mode side of things. And it started with you telling the story of Maui taming the sun. And I thought, man, there's something interesting going on here. Tell us about that pitch and how that relates to what you're doing. Yeah, so we're trying to build a fusion reactor. Um, and that's effectively trying to take the energy source that makes not just the sun, but all the stars in the sky work. Um, and the really cool thing about the legend of Maui going to tame the sun, and this is actually true of most um, stories in Māori mythology, is that it's really a story about the fact that the world doesn't always look the way that it needs to for the people who live within that world. And you often need to go reshape it in some way, take some kind of power from those who have either preceded you, if they're embodied as as gods, potentially, um, and reshape that world to actually suit people. So like Maui went out on that quest because the sun was going too quickly and erratically across the sky. You couldn't do your daily chores, your work. You couldn't grow crops the way that you needed to. And today, it's not the sun that's giving us trouble because Maui already, already did that part of a job. But we are running into those exact same problems. The way that we generate energy to fuel our society so that we can do our daily work, so we can have the things that make our lives work, um, those energy sources are causing damage to the climate and and the planet. Um, And that's almost the laws of physics. If you put carbon dioxide into the air, you're going to warm up the climate. Um, And so the question is, can we go back to those laws of physics and can we master some other way of making the energy that we need in order to make the world a 
more livable and long-term sustainable environment for human beings. That quest is exactly the same. Like that's the underlying lesson from stories like that. And in the case of Maui Taming the Sun, it's just very aligned with trying to build a fusion reactor. Yeah, and tell us about that as, you know, the sun and stars with fusion have been something that's been known about for a long time, but not something that's been able to be achieved. Can you kind of fill us in on like why that situation is when there has been nuclear fission uh, with a much more kind of um, long-lasting legacy associated with it? Yeah, so nuclear fusion and fission are obviously different things. So fusion refers to bringing the nuclei of small elements together to make larger nuclei. And fission is about pulling them apart. So you have to start off with a really big uh, nucleus. Um, So often, you know, the the scary words like uranium and plutonium are the classic ones that will undergo fission. Um, And the challenge there is that fission is just simply easier to achieve. Um, Those elements are much more unstable. They really do want to break apart. And in fact, you know, we feel like we have quite a disconnected Um, experience from fission in our day-to-day life, but nuclear fission that occurs naturally is actually why the Earth remains warm in its core. So the reason why we have a molten planet um, in in its core and that we haven't kind of frozen over, and one is fusion energy coming from the sun, but the other is actually fission energy in the um, mantle of the Earth, keeping everything warm and um, soft. Life on Earth probably wouldn't be possible if that, if that wasn't the case. So all of these things are quite natural. Um, but when you reduce them to practice, actually build machines to do them, they end up really different. So fission reactors end up being um, what we would call passively unsafe. So if you just leave them alone to do what they want to do, they usually break um, and you have to actively keep them safe. And that's a very hard engineering challenge and why they're so regulated and also very related to why New Zealand decided not to pursue them. Uh, fusion reactors are the opposite. Fusion is so hard to do that if you take your foot off a pedal and try not to actually run the fusion reactor, it won't do anything. It will just turn off every time. Um, that makes our job very hard to build them in the first place but has the advantage that we know we are building much more intrinsically safe systems um, that can be used to power large communities. What are the inputs to a fusion system? And I guess the outputs as well, as I think everyone walking into something that has nuclear at the front Mm. of it has these feelings and fears around long-term storage of waste and the like and you know there's even these very interesting thought experiments going on of like how do you store something for hundreds of millions of years will people even know if we put a warning sign on it what it means you know you've got such abstract kind of weird thoughts with fission but what about fusion so that's exactly right it is actually that very human piece that makes managing the fission waste supply chain uh, so difficult so yeah, just simple things like putting warning signs on it or trying to bury it. The, the kind of ironic thing is people said, well, if we bury it deep enough, you know, under this mountain, no one will go looking for it. And, but the actual answer is 
they'll figure out that we buried it there and they will be curious, you know, thousands of years from now, they'll go like, well, clearly they tried to bury something very important there, just like we, how we dig up a pharaoh, like in a, in a pyramid or something like that. Um, so the advantage of the fusion machines is that they do produce uh, a little bit of waste. So when you uh, have to go in and do maintenance, you need to be careful with the materials that come out. But those materials are not going to last on those same kind of timeframes. We don't have this big long-term deep time communication problem anymore. And we already know how to deal with that kind of waste because we're dealing with it um, in other industries. In particular, like even in New Zealand, the medical industry has exactly this. So if you have to go to hospital for a cancer treatment, Um, And they use radiotherapy. Uh, So that's using these kind of radioactive materials to target and attack that cancer. Um, You yourself become radioactive. Um, One of my staff actually went through this. Um, And so we had a Geiger counter at work and, you know, he goes, boop, 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 right? He was the most radioactive thing in the office by by far. Um, And so every, all all the clothing, all the things you touch, you usually spend time in a specialized ward. All of that stuff is collected very carefully, handled and disposed of safely to keep everybody else safe. Um, Fusion is the same, probably just on a bigger industrial scale, but the tools that we need to handle that just need to be scaled. And we don't think that's particularly difficult. What about the inputs as also things like, you know, the French sourcing of uranium is one of the reasons that they're still involved in all sorts of awful things in Africa. And, you you know, like a lot of the raw materials for fission as well are are, are very problematic. So in more, um, I'll I'll call them uh, geopolitical, spooky uh, type thinking around how energy works and really thinking about the geopolitical implications of how energy works. One of the challenges that we have with our current system is that different countries, whether or not they're democracies, whether or not they love freedom, you know, respect the civil rights of people, either within their own borders or other borders, doesn't seem to really matter. All that matters is that the oil is there or the uranium is there and we're going to do what we need to do to get it. The cool thing about fusion is that the majority of the inputs really are agnostic to geography. So once you manage to master the technology the pressure to go past your borders and, you know, really try to get a hold of these materials is significantly lower. It's really a battle around the technology and the IP. And in the West, we're really hopeful that we have maintained the kind of innovation cultures you need to actually build technology like this. Um, So, yeah, no, I don't think there's ever going to be like a, you know, fusion conflict of energy. Um, If if anything, it's going to be the exact opposite. And the major raw material is... Uh, derived, made, sourced from seawater, right? Yeah, so the easiest reaction to do is between two isotopes of hydrogen. So one's called deuterium and one's called tritium. Uh, The deuterium is found in seawater in in huge abundance. The other, tritium, is unfortunately not. That is quite rare. Right now there's only 20 kgs of it available and the Canadians have all of it. Um, I did watch an American company threaten to invade Canada. It was very much a joke. I know, given what I just said about, you know, geopolitical <laughs> conflict, that, that was very much a joke. Um, once you have working fusion reactors, though, the concept is that you can actually create the tritium during the process and that the real input is not the tritium, it's actually just lithium and much less lithium than we need to be able to extract for, say, building batteries and, and such like that. So really the inputs that turn up are deuterium and lithium and 
you know, if you think you're going to electri- electrify transport, you're talking in that arena of orders of magnitude more lithium than what the fusion industry would ever need. And so, again, we think that's highly abundant. What is the process or the approach that you're taking? And what role does the Robinson Research Institute play in it, which is this fantastic centre of excellence uh, in, in New Zealand that I don't think enough people know about? Yeah. Um, so the approach that we're taking is to build a very powerful superconducting magnet, which then confines a very hot plasma. So the plasma is the fuel, and it's a plasma because we want it so hot to get the kind of collisions that need to happen to make fusion happen. If you get the fusion going on, that releases heat, that keeps the plasma hot, and then it keeps on it, it keeps itself going. Um, and at the core of that is that superconducting magnet that holds on to the plasma. And it turns out that Robinson Research Institute, based in the Hutt Valley down in Wellington, um, is a world leader in superconducting technologies. So this new wave of materials that we've seen, which we call the high-temperature superconductors, which is very much a physicist's euphemism, they're still cryogenic. Um, They're just higher than the last generation. (laughs) Um, Those materials, since since the first useful material was discovered, that was actually the formula was patented by the team at Robinson, um, before it was called Robinson. That was back in the late 80s. And that team has uh, stayed at the forefront of that technology ever since. So starting off at the material science and going, oh, okay, this is what the material looks like, this is what the crystal looks like, this is how we synthesize it. Moving up to say, well, if it's a superconductor, we probably want to make wires that will conduct electricity. So how do we work with industry to create the wire that then people can use? Then industry masters how to make the wire so you can buy it. And you go, okay, now we have superconducting wire. Let's try to make machines out of that wire. Um, And so every time the industry gets better at doing something, Robinson has stepped up the uh, technology chain to something new. Um, Fast forward a couple of decades, I turn up to do my PhD. Um, I was working on superconducting power supplies for hybrid electric aircraft. Um, Again, that's kind of where the technology had gotten to. Um, Superconducting power supply is just the new version of a wall charger for your phone. So it does exactly the same thing, except it's made out of superconductor and it performs slightly better or differently uh, because of that. Um, And Robinson had been at the forefront of that the entire time, but had gone through a couple of different name changes over that over that period. So it started off as the uh, DSIR, started off as research team there. Then the DSIR was split up and they went into IRL. So some listeners will remember IRL. Some listeners may remember the DSIR as well. (laughs) Um, And then IRL turned into Cullihan Innovation. And then Cullihan Innovation started to try to spin out its research groups. And so Robinson was what got spun out into Victoria University. And so they've had a real branding problem, actually, through this period, Uh, not just um, domestically in New Zealand, but actually internationally. Like, we'll go to conferences and they'll go, who are you guys? And then you have to run them through it. Oh, of course. You know, I've been following your work for decades. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Can't remember it. Um, And so these days we're kind of far enough in the technology that these conductors are being used in fusion. Um, So it's not just uh, OpenStar. It's also other... um, government-based programs and private companies that are working with Robinson for that technology. And your path in the PhD and then working with return on science and in 
that interface between science and commercialization as well. Mirrors a bit of that journey, hey? Yeah. The So I actually always wanted to be in, I didn't know what to call it at the time, but now that I'm in the industry, we all call it deep tech. This idea of taking really hard scientific innovations and commercializing them for the benefit of everyone. Um, you know, there was a little bit of bias because I was probably more of a physicist than a software programmer. Um, I liked physical, tangible things, which, you know, probably was going to make my life harder than just writing code. No, no offense to those who write code. It's, um, it is very impressive. Um, so when I got to Robinson, one of the things that really struck me was through that history, you know, following the HTS technology through, the theme through all of that is that they're working with industry at every step, right? And in fact, they were often contributing to the fact that industry was able to move forward and then adapting to wherever they needed to be next after that. Um, and that meant I knew it was going to be a good environment for me to get a grip of what it looked like to commercialize and transfer technology into industry. Um, when I was a summer student, before I started my PhD, I had an opportunity to go to Texas for six months to work with a manufacturer who was actually making the superconducting wire. Um, and that, that was just an amazing experience and insight to see the difference between, say, a research lab and a production and commercial environment. You know, a business that actually had to go out, raise money, make promises about how much wire they were going to deliver to what clients they were going to deliver it to, and think about the kind of quality assurance processes that they would need to to kind of deliver that. Um, and those kind of hard commercial realities, I think, were super interesting for me. And then when I came back, got you know into the PhD program, those were the kind of insights that I was able to bring to a program like Return on Science, which was really trying to help uh, commercialization of tech across the whole New Zealand university um, ecosystem. And along the way, where did the idea come to you? Like, had you had a kind of like thing ticking away in the back of the head that fusion's pretty cool? Because it is, eh? Like, it's one of those, you know, cool kind of nearly there sciences and still a little bit in the science fiction realm um, and, and, and a lot of great d developments lately. And, and had you had a thought that some of this work might be applicable there? Or how, how did this kind of, were you heading that way or how did it come about? So I was actually, again, a summer student when the first big step on this actually happened. So I, well, I actually take it a step back. I was an undergrad and then I was doing an undergraduate lab and my demonstrator said the world leading team in developing these wires is in the Hutt Valley across the ba Wellington <laughs> Bay. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, and then a few years later, I find myself doing a research assistantship there. Um, and actually during that time was when a company spun out of MIT in the United States, a company called Commonwealth Fusion Systems. They, um, when they spun out, raised about 70 million USD straight away. Like, that's not a seed round. That's not, <laughs> that, that was absolutely huge. Um, and the first thing that they needed to do was prove that these materials were ready to be used in fusion to build the kind of magnets that you need to to confine the plasmas and, and heat them and um, that kind of thing. And so, you know, we're just at the other side of the world from MIT, quite quite literally. Um, but the first thing that they did on their commercial pathway was fly the chief science officer and two of their, you know, fresh researchers to New Zealand to use our, um, uh, what's the word, um, 
qualification equipment, the kind of equipment we use to measure the performance of the wires and really understand them. Um, they were flying over to us to use that equipment. I was just a summer student at the time. I was like, oh my God, what's, <laughs> what's going on? Like, you know, this, this place seems to be moving and shaking. Um, and I was lucky enough to hear their pitch, the pitch that they had used to, to raise that funding and the original story about how these new materials were really going to enable fusion. Um, and so that was when it moved from something fanciful in the mind to realizing that the kind of technological currents were now moving in the right direction to the point that people were actually spinning up businesses to, to attack that. That was the moment where I went, oh, maybe fusion isn't 30 years away. Maybe it's only 10 years away. Um, that was 2017, I think. Um, so what's that? That's six years ago. So apparently fusion is four years away, which I actually think is their current timeline. So I think that's fine. Wow. And that Commonwealth approach, I mean, they're up to uh, two billion or something in funding now, right? Yeah. And them and most of the other thirty odd, uh, you know, pr- like saying ventures doesn't capture the size of most of these things or the kind of backing behind them, right? Yeah. But these massive projects, most of them are taking a different approach to what you are. And tell us about that kind of, you know, an existing approach. And and what did you see in that that you thought combining these new technologies? and this uh, known approach could, could bring a change? So for the tokamaks, which is what um, most of the attention has really gone into, the benefit of a tokamaks is that they're very well understood. So if you propose a machine, it has um, you know X amount of magnetic field, it has Y amount of heating power, it is uh, Z, you know, size big, you know, it's, it's yeah, some size of a machine. If you put in all of the numbers that you need to, you can really accurately predict what that machine will do. Um, well, there's a little bit of extrapolation because you're always trying to do better than the last machines that were built. But in principle, they're the best understood machines. And so all of the technology risk is not in the science of building the machine. It's in the engineering of building the magnets and the overall system. The downside of a tokamaks is that they're extremely complex. Because we understand them so well, we've discovered all of their shortcomings, and we have compensated for those shortcomings by making the engineering more complicated. So for an example, the plasma that you get in a tokamak is not naturally stable. It has to be actively stabilized by computer algorithms, so you're always watching that plasma like a hawk, and if it does anything wrong, you have to kind of push it back in the right direction. And if you don't do that perfectly, it will lose confinement. All of the energy of that plasma will probably re-divert into the chamber of a machine or the magnets of a machine. Um, and usually, uh, well, that can definitely cause a machine-destroying event. Not the kind of cataclysm that causes any risk to anyone outside of a device, and you don't operate. People were never around these things when they operate. Um, but from a capital loss perspective, you've lost the machine. And, and time and effort. And yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the ability to move forwards. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and, and your approach? So we, with the tokamaks, it was, yeah, pretty, pretty scary. The engineering seemed possible, the physics seemed solid, but the economics was extremely daunting. And to get those problems under control, you were only going to make the machines more expensive, not, not cheaper. So 
I was doing my PhD thinking maybe I'm going to go work at Commonwealth Fusion Systems at the end because Fusion is worth working on and vis-a-vis skill sets that I've built. Um, But I was actually really lucky to come across a different concept um, thanks to a friend of mine who had done his master's degree in Japan. And so he came back to New Zealand. We were having dinner. We're listing out all the different ways you can do Fusion, Um, different designs of machines, arrangements of magnets, um, everything under the sun. And... He mentioned one that I just had never heard of before called the levitated dipole. And again, funny physics-y name, but it's essentially just a simple ring magnet. Um, And that magnet creates a field that looks very similar to the magnetosphere above Earth. So there's a big plasma around Earth right now. It's very thin. There's not a lot of energy in it, but it's very, very large. Um, And that magnetosphere has been there since Earth had a magnetic field. And the levitated dipole was this idea that maybe we can bring that down into a human scale, into machines that we could actually build, and that we can use the properties of those magnetospheres to make useful fusion. The first property that looks very attractive is that these magnetospheres are stable. They don't need this active stabilization that the tokamaks need. The first drawback is that in a planet, the highest energy particles in that magnetosphere hit the poles of a planet. We call that the Aurora Australis and Borealis. So anyone who's been lucky enough to actually see that, um, that's the would-be fusion reactor around Earth cooling itself down, which is good. Um, but the levitated dipole gets rid of the poles. So they don't get in the way, and those highest energy particles stay confined, and you can keep heating up the plasma until it's hot enough to actually start fusing. Um, and it's missing a lot of the disadvantages of all the other schemes. And there's only one real drawback, which is that the magnet is now inside the plasma. The plasma surrounds the magnet entirely. You can't make any connections to the damn thing, which is why it has to be levitated. And all of the engineering difficulties basically stem from the fact that that magnet has to be a self-contained, self-running system while you're running the device. Um, That was the first hurdle um, that stop, stopped the last program that was run, a project called LDX, again, actually at MIT and Columbia. Um, and that is the hurdle we think we had solved with the technology from Robinson, is how do we keep one of these new HTS magnets running uh, while it's not connected to a kind of any external um, driving electronics or cooling systems or whatever whatever you need to run a magnet. Um so that's for levitated dipole, that's OpenStar, that's what we're trying to do right now. And once we solve that, we then think we've unlocked how to um, build these kinds of magnets and then scale them up where they need to go to start being useful fusion machines. Wow, and we'll be back in a moment with Dr. Atu Matara to hear how he built the company around this idea. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. 
Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Oki mai ano. Welcome back to Business is Boring. So having come to that idea that, you know, there's a way to uh, make that magnet at the centre uh, levitated with, with um, no way to connect to it in a, in a system where there's like increasing, um, you, you, you know, heat in, in, inside a magnetically held plasma mm. <laughs> circle around it. I mean, that, that's such a remarkable kind of like concept and lovely thing to kind of like get an abstract of in your head. But how do you go and go, hey, I think this might work, team, because you can't kind of like spin up a prototype in your garage or something. Like, how do you go about building a case with with people that this could work and then getting those first believers to be able to start turning it into a venture? I think this is a classic um, case of, uh, I, I forget who it's named after. There's an effect where you have to take po- both points of view um, as seriously as possible. So both the, oh my God, this could work and, oh my God, why is this not going to work? Um, at the same time and push them um, as hard as you can. So the part that came first was, oh, my God, I think this could work um, because the problems that were there um, we had already solved in a different setting for those hybrid electric aircraft. Um, and so it felt like a solution looking for a problem, which I think is unfairly derided um, conceptually in, in business um, <laughs> too much. Um, what comes after that is really important, which is that you really do need to try kill the idea as fast as possible. I'll be very clear. The last thing I want to do is raise a billion dollars of capital from investors across the world um, only to find that the concept was bogus in a way that I could have written down on a whiteboard from day one. Um, and to be honest, there's lots of fusion concepts out there where that's absolutely true. You can just prove on paper why they will not work and they don't need to be built or investigated because of that. We're pretty pretty well convinced. The difference with the levitated dipole is that the literature that does exist, the models that have been run and the experiments done so far, all say it should work, right? This thing has stood up to the experimental tests that we have mustered so far. And so... If the theory tells you it works and the experiments to date tell you that it still works, the only thing left to do is actually build a bigger machine until you've built a big enough machine for it to actually be useful. And all the while, you're you're collecting more insight about how these things actually work and whether or not they are going to be economic in the end. Um, so I actually, from learning about the concept before deciding to actually start a company, uh, took me about a year. That was me reading literature learning about plasma physics, because I'm actually a more a magnet systems PhD, um, and deciding whether or not I actually wanted to do this and trying to figure out why the hell I shouldn't. Um, because, yeah, building a fusion company, building any business, um, is extremely daunting, and you shouldn't uh, undertake it until you really feel like you don't have much of a choice in the matter. And that, you know, comes from your convictions, but you, you want to make sure they're pretty rock solid to make the commitment. And when you're getting into those spaces where, you know, you've had to brush up on kind of PhD level plasma physics to augment uh, magnet physics and the like, you know, 
I guess lots of companies have difficulty finding people who get what they do. But like you've got a, a very a very real bar for people to cross to really get what you do. How do you go about building that first kind of cohort of people who get it and, and back it? So there were two two aspects of that. One was on the magnet technology, we could do it the good old-fashioned way, which is being so closely located to Robinson there was a pool of talent who did know their stuff, right? I had world-class experts right there. Um, some of them we kind of contract in from Robinson. Other people uh, made the, the jump into OpenStar itself. And so we really are expert magnet builders um, and experts in all the systems that you need, um, which is really the core of what we're trying to deliver in our seed round uh, right now. The other, there's actually two other things we needed to do. One was on the plasma physics side. Um, the best I could do, and I'm very happy with the result to be very clear, is just take the best, brightest people I could find and then throw them in the deep end and say, you're learning plasma physics. I can't supervise you properly. Good luck. Um, those people, um, so one person in particular, Thomas, um, <laughs> we've road tested him at um, international conferences now. People can't tell that he doesn't have a PhD in plasma physics. Um, and he learned all of that within the space of a year without a proper supervisor. Now, why was I confident he could do that? He did his master's degree in mathematics at Victoria and published eight papers during that time. Most master's degrees don't publish a single paper. So the, the guy was an absolute weapon and I was pretty confident he'd be able to handle being thrown in the deep end. Um, the other one is my close friend Al, who was kind of employee number one. So he's our director of special projects, as we like to say. Al did his PhD in mathematics, in particular the theory of gravity, black holes, wormholes. He has a type of black hole wormhole hybrid named after him. It's called the Simpson Vissa space-time. He's Simpson in the equation. Um, he published 22 papers in his PhD. Um, and I didn't throw him in the deep end of the plasma physics. I threw him in the deep end on helping me build the business because it's not a normal business. It's extremely complex. Um, everything we do is extremely technical. And the challenge of both organizing and running that business and then also translating that to the different organizations, agencies, investors, stakeholders that we interact with is also extremely complex. Um, but again, I just took someone extremely talented and threw them in the deep end on something that you might not necessarily think they were qualified for, but who on earth was going to be qualified for it, right? Who was I going to find um, other than the smartest person I could um, to tackle that problem? Um, and he's, again, done a fantastic job. The scale of the ambition and the scale of the project are also kind of, you know, a little bit outside of the, the New Zealand Aotearoa um, normal data set, right? Because we are like a, a small and not very wealthy country compared to lots of the people who do try and take these things on. How, how's that been? And kind of map out for us kind of, you know, what, what, what are the kind of, you, you had to kind of go 10 mil first and then what will have to be next and what will have to be next to kind of keep hitting these, uh, the, 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 the milestones you need to keep moving this forward? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the daunting things is that when you do go pitch, you have to pitch the full story from all the funding rounds that you expect before you get to, like you're a tur baby turtle on the beach and you need to make it to the ocean and there's lots of things that are going to get you before you get there. Um, but the reassuring thing is that companies are structured, well, VC investment is structured in these funding rounds precisely to truncate the amount that you're doing each time. 
So the idea of successfully building fusion reactors and selling electricity is extremely daunting. But the RATU and the OpenStar that's sitting in front of you right now is not the team that's going to do that. Where we haven't grown into that yet, actually hitting those milestones over all of the funding rounds helps us build into the team and helps us build into the people who can take on that challenge um, along the way. So sometimes I just take a step back and I say, actually, my job right now is to deliver the milestones we've dedicated to now and that if we actually do that, we will be ready to take the next step. But the fact that the next step seems very scary right now um, is a very human experience. But, yeah, you try to tone, tone that back down. Um, you actually you said, yeah, raise, raise $10 million, so that was our seed round. Um, that was not the original pitch. Um, we really thought we were going to raise probably $3 million, much smaller team, um, only integrate a couple of the technologies that we needed to and the problem with that is because the last experiments that had been done in academia were of a certain scale, if we had done anything less than that, if we hadn't reached those milestones, we wouldn't have had the momentum. And momentum really matters in technology, but it matters in particular with fusion. You watch fusion projects around the world fail because they slow down and they reach a point where adding another person or adding another brilliant PhD student doesn't help anymore. Um, and that's a real cultural thing. So it was actually advice from Peter Beck that basically said, look, if you're going to be able to get to the end, you actually need to be able to go hard or go home. And you need to think of what is that um, milestone that's really going to get investors excited. And for us, that was turning on a plasma uh, around our machine. And to do that, the machine had to be much bigger. And suddenly we're talking about a $10 million project. Um, and to be honest, that was the correct decision. Um, that really threw us in the deep end, but we needed to be thrown in the deep end um, to prove ourselves as the kind of team that would be able to go the distance. That is so cool. And like, he's doing such a job in the New Zealand ecosystem of helping to just upscale that ambition and and add a couple of zeros on everything. Yeah. And you keep, keep hearing it from, um, you know, all, all manner of places. It's so cool. And also he has that link to Outset that he ended up leading you around, right? And so what's the kind of role of these kind of deep tech science expert participants in the ecosystem? Because you can't kind of like you know, it's not going to be an angel group that's going to get this, right? <laughs> like, how, 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 it, it's such a great sign of the kind of the specialization of a maturation of the ecosystem. Well, you say it's a maturation, but actually I think the deeply ironic thing is I think it's a return to basics, not, not a maturation. So software really ate the world. Um, it became the source of all of our productivity gains, all of our massive, you know, trillion-dollar businesses, um, and we got very myopic that software could solve all of our problems, and that affected the venture capital industry as well. You know, they were really leading the t charge. They're looking for returns, and the cool thing about software is you can get those returns very quickly, and so everybody got very used to software VC. Um, but when I say it's not a maturation to move away from that, what I really mean is that that is not how VC started. The original kind of Silicon Valley VC firms were investing in deep tech because you actually had to invent the computer before you could invent the software. So companies like Hewlett-Packard, Intel, um, Fairchild Superconduct uh, Semiconductor, um, 
these were all venture-backed businesses that, um, you know, changed the world in their own right, were the VC thesis from the beginning um, and laid the foundation for what then became the software revolution. Um, Deep Tech will do that again. So the new VCs that are going back to those basics and saying, actually, we can build that hard technology, that will be another multi-decade cycle that will unlock a brand new set of hard technologies on which we can build, I don't know, we'll call them soft technologies of some kind. Um, so take Fusion, for example. One day we'll have fusion reactors. Um, electricity will be so cheap we don't need to meter it. Um, and we will approach building new technologies on cheap abundant energy completely differently to how we think about using energy today. That will create a new generation of businesses and a new approach to VC. But to bring it back to outset um, and those kind of deep tech VCs, really what they're bringing to the table is looking at what VC should be, looking at what it can be from first principles again and not being bound up in what's been done before and what's been successful over that kind of 20-year timescale and really looking at it on what's successful over that kind of 50-year timescale and realising that those deep tech opportunities are coming back. Yeah, it's so cool. And yeah, like those waves or cycles, atoms, then bits. And now it's kind of atoms and bits, mm. right? The, <laughs> the advances in, in bits are, are, are fueling a lot of that. And as you say there about the abundance of, of power that's coming, like the change to the world of that availability is something that, you, you know, is hard to actually kind of even even kind of like start to grasp the scale of it right. And one of the first places is climate. But then, as you say, there's, there's so much more in terms of opportunity to, to do new things. It's opportunities to do new things. Like every, energy is at the base of every problem that we have. You know, if we talk about anything being expensive, if we talk about keeping people's war, uh, homes warm so that they don't get sick, that's energy. If we talk about being able to afford to make it to work every day because of, you know, petrol prices too high, that's energy again. If you talk about inflation and the cost of food, that's often um, the energy inputs that go are going into that food. That's for tractors that you're using. That's for transport to get it to um, the shelf. That's for refrigeration you've been using. Energy keeps hitting you on the cost of everything that we do because it's the master resource. Um so it's a, it will be a huge egalitarian shift um, for abundant energy to allow us to increase the living standards of many, many people. Um, to be honest, I actually consider myself uh, far too unimaginative um, in terms of what really could change if we had that really abundant energy. Um, the best I can really come up with is that we will have a proliferation of travel and a much closer feeling global society as we realize that we can use energy to travel further, faster, cheaper, and New York will not feel like a, you know, uh, what is it, a 14-hour flight, right? We'll figure out how to make a plane faster, we'll get there faster, and, you know, your family could be, you know, on the other side of the world, and it wouldn't be, you know, four or five years before you actually see each other. You'd be doing that much more regularly. I think that's one of the more uh, human outcomes of something like that. But don't get me wrong, I actually, yeah, I do feel very unimaginative in that sense. I actually think it will far exceed our expectations. The idea of climate change mitigation from fusion. So, you know, obviously we can turn off all the coal power plants and stop burning, um, 
you know, ancient ancient carbon, uh, but also things like carbon sequestration that's mm. been very hard to um, make a case for in terms of energy expended versus <laughs> energy kind of captured. Um, all kinds of things suddenly become possible in that space. Yeah, so one of the, again, energy is at the base of all of these problems and the core problem with carbon sequestration is that it takes energy to sequester the carbon, just in the same way that we got energy from releasing it in the first place. And so there's this argument that if you have cheap energy in different parts of the world that you can run sequestration there, those arguments often tend to to fall over and you should just relocate the energy to not burn the carbon in the first place, that kind of thing. Um, but really what needs to be true to make sequestration an important part of how we deal with climate change is that we need to believe that energy itself will be cheaper in the future so that, yes, if we have to burn fossil fuels today to keep the economy moving, um, that the energy itself will be cheaper tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now, so that we can pay that energy back to the environment effectively to sequester that carbon. That will be part of the mix, I think, um, but it can't it can't be the whole story again because it is also capital intensive. You have to build the carbon sequestration machines, and so we really we do need to today think about how we can minimise um, the release of carbon from our existing economy. Um, but there are really there are low hanging fruit. I think like buying a hybrid is a very low hanging fruit. Um, then from hybrids, you upgrade to a, a purely electric vehicles. Um, that's a slightly less low-hanging fruit. Um, and fusion reactors are not a low-hanging fruit in this equation, but we know we're going to need to get there. We know that there are sufficiently difficult um, carbon problems that they will need really hard solutions, such as fusion. Tell me about the role of your grandmother that you've talked about in a number of interviews in setting the conditions for you to believe that big change is possible? Uh, so my grandmother, Dame Katarina de uh, Koko Matara, um, was a big influence on my life. Um, but really, so she she's an example of, she's a really clear, simple example of what role models can mean to people. Um, and for me, so a little bit of background. So she has a few accolades to her name. Um, she started the first te reo class in a state school after, you know, decades of the suppression of te reo Māori in schools. Um, she would go on to found an organisation called Te Atarangi, which was really um, focused on the revitalization of te reo with adults and families and communities. Um, and she was also uh, instrumental in the establishment of the Kurakopapa, the Māori immersion schools. Um, and that all culminates in this um, adage that, you know, she saved the language from extinction, or is at least one of the major contributors. Um, and for me, that, like, seems as daunting, if not borderline impossible, <laughs> compared to even building a fusion reactor. I mean, we all learn our tools of a trade. She had she had hers and I've, I've got mine. But the, the scale of the problem and the way that it was presented to her, so when she, she was at the University of Waikato and her supervisor, the government produced a um, report, her supervisor put it in front of her, the report said te reo Māori uh, was going to go extinct. 
Um, it had reached a threshold of native speakers that wasn't enough to sustain it. He put that report in front of her and just asked her, what are you going to do about it? Um, and that's been a recruitment technique that I've used consistently from now. So <laughs> typically what I do at a company is, you know, um, climate change is a thing. Uh, we think we have a way of helping by building these fusion reactors. What are you going to do about it? You know, join, join the team, come, come work on it. Um, and when things get really tough for me, building a business like this is extremely stressful. Um, that's a experience and a role model and a bar that I can look at and hold myself to not just in an expectant way, but also in a very reassuring way that things of this magnitude and scale are possible and they're only possible because people, you know, dedicate themselves to solving those problems. Yeah, it's so, that's so wonderful. And, you know, boy, you, you know, systems to go against after active suppression and having to make space for all of those things you know, an extraordinarily unlikely accomplishment at that moment. Absolutely. And certainly a scenario very much like climate change where you could be very prone to despair, right? Like you could really feel like you were on the losing end of that battle and, and kind of the final final stages of a, a massive defeat. Um, but being able to look at that and believe that you can actually not just stem the tide but actually reverse it, um, yeah, it, Absolutely massive. What advice would you have to someone who does see a new way into an unsolvable problem uh, or does think, man, we could try one of the biggest, you know, to answer or find our own path to one of the biggest questions in the world? So that is, it is really hard. Um, but the advice I would say is, I think I said it at the beginning, which is that you ha both have to be extremely optimistic, really looking for how could this work, right? How could the world be different? How could this solution actually come to fruition? So you need that, that really brass tacks optimism. But on the flip side, you also need to be able to temper that with a strong dedication to figuring out if you're wrong as soon as possible. That's not just to save your investors money and to not waste people's time. It's also because that dedication to hunting down where you might be wrong is typically the best and most effective way to actually make progress. Because every time you fail to prove that something can't be done, you've actually ticked up you know, a checkbox on the it can be done board. Um, and those things that you can tackle first um, are typically the ones that are within your reach. So they're typically cheaper, faster to do, need less talent, need a um, smaller team. Um, and you can amass those wins along the way. So it's not just, a, you know, don't waste your time, figure out why it's not going to work. You know, we don't want to be hearing from these kooky kids type piece of advice. It is actually the best way to success is to look for um, those things that are going to absolutely make you fail. Eventually, you have something that works, and I think the advice would need to change, but you'll probably need to, yeah, talk to me in like, yeah, five, seven, ten years, and I'll give you that different piece of advice. And as a final thought, what will success be for you personally and for OpenStar? Uh, so for me personally, um, I would love to build a fusion reactor um, and really crack for problem do, do that for humanity. But, you know, Mother Nature really could disagree, right? So there are uncertainties in the system. Yes, the theory says it works, but until we build one, we don't know. Building one and having it not work 
because Mother Nature disagrees, there's something we haven't understood about the physics that becomes apparent in that machine. I would consider that a success. It would obviously be disappointing because we didn't get to the end outcomes that we were hoping for and excited about. But in terms of building a business, building a team, attacking an engineering problem, doing the science, um, you know, building the careers, increasing the talent, training everybody, you know, the human story of it, I would consider an absolute success um, in that outcome. Um, And success for me is whether or not I can lead and build that team in that direction. So the good outcome or that, that less good outcome. If that's the way we go, I would consider that an outright success um, and be uh, very proud of myself and, and, and the team. Um, success for OpenStar, commercially speaking, um, if our reactors work, um, I think we're going to go out and sell them, basically. right? It's going to be a commercial venture. We're going to be selling fusion reactors uh, across the world, exporting that IP. Um, if OpenStar is largely a New Zealand-held company, we'll turn New Zealand into the Norway of the Pacific, right? Norway has natural gas. We can have fusion. Um, and that would be an amazing journey. But again, if, if the fusion doesn't work, we've solved a lot of technical problems along the way, which will have value in other domains as well. So maybe, you know, it takes a different journey. But what I am really confident on is that we are doing amazing work, generating value, building an amazing team, um, as Outset Ventures often reminds us, if OpenStar doesn't work out, they've got at least four companies they could probably invest in. Yeah. <laughs> that would you know, spring out of, uh, out of the wreckage. Um, so it, it's been an amazing journey. And until, until one of these machines tells us that it's not going to work, I'm just going to keep working really hard and keep moving forward. I can't wait to see where you take it next. Thank you so much for coming and sharing of your story today. That's Dr. Latu Mataira. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you so much to Ratu. Thank you so much to you for listening and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Samuel Robinson. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and leave us a review if you like what we do. In Ora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.